Amen. Thank you, Shauna. Thank you to our worship team. And thank you, Mendy, for inviting us into the presence of God this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope you had an opportunity to celebrate some evidences of God's grace in your life. I know our community group gathered this past Sunday night and really had an opportunity to share and, and witness. Thankful we are that God's passage describes love for one another and, uh, and how thankful we are that God has brought us into this community. And so uh, we're thankful for that. As I begin this morning, I just want to point your attention to a few things um, as a way of announcement this morning uh, as you're, you're listening here. The first thing is... Uh, God willing, we are just a few weeks from moving into our new space. We'll have some greater updates on that this week. Um, we're very excited about that. Many of you have given towards that end. Uh, we talked about our immeasurably more giving. Uh, giving towards asking God to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We're not giving uh, as way of to earn his favor, but we're giving because that's who our God is, and we believe in his character, and we know that he does that, and so we want to bring our resources to him and allow him to multiply those and seek to advance the kingdom of God, and we're thankful for that, and thank you for your generosity in that. We're going to have, we're bringing to really tangibly give to that in the coming future. Uh, as we move into our new space, we're bringing back kids ministry, which uh, some of you are very excited about. And uh, some of you have grown comfortable with having them in worship service, and we're thankful they're here. We're glad they're here. Uh, discipler, believers in not only that parents, yes, parents are the primary discipler, discipler but they don't have to be the only discipler. And uh, we want to come alongside parents and families and help disciple kiddos. And uh, we're going to be bringing that back. And there's actually training and equipping that's happening this week. So if you're not signed up to serve in that capacity, we would encourage you to do that. Um, if you've been a part of Equip, I think we have 40 to 50 people who've been walking through Equip this past several months. This coming Saturday is our uh, Equip Immersion half-day training. We're excited about that. Week of Prayer will be starting next Sunday. You have a flyer there around you. We'd encourage you to sign up. We're trying to cover the entire week previous uh, to moving into our building to really take time to pray and ask God to do immeasurably more. We, we would just ask... Um, there, there's, there's availability, I can tell you that. We would ask that you join us in that. And uh, take an hour time slot. You get to pray from the comforts of your home and uh, would encourage you to do so. And then lastly, on December 12th is our joining the family lunch. If you haven't already participated in the past several weeks uh, of our joining the family and what it looks like to really step all in here at Ecclesia, we would encourage you to do so. That's all. Let's get started. First John chapter 3. 11 through 20, and uh, we'll jump right in. Took a group of uh, several years ago, while we were still in Texas, we took a group of students and adults uh, to partner with a crusade uh, by Greg Laurie. If you're familiar, Greg Laurie uh, would do very auditoriums, or Graham used to do. Billy Graham would rent out giant uh, auditoriums or uh, event centers or stadiums. 
and there would be an invitation to come and hear the good news of Jesus and respond to the good news of Jesus. And Greg Laurie is probably one of kind of the leading people who has been doing this in the past uh, several years, and actually several decades. And, uh, and he would do these evangelistic crusades where hundreds of thousands of people would come to hear the message of Jesus, and hundreds and thousands of people would would be saved, and they would give their life and commit their life and follow Jesus. And so we flew out with about 30 students and adults. We went to Angels Stadium in LA there, and this is where the event would be hosted, and we received training. We received equipping, and basically our role was to come alongside the Greg Laurie Crusade, go out into the community, and invite people and, and, and pray for people, and, and people come to, to the event, and then at the event, we would pray people, pray with people and help people come to know what it means to follow Jesus. And this was our role and this was our responsibility. And so we went to malls, we went to parks, grocery stores, skate parks. But the one we, we pulled up to the beach, I vividly remember us being at, uh, was the beach. We, we pulled up to the beach, we parked, we filed out of the vans, and we started combing through the shores of the beach handing out invitations and talking to people. And I remember looking up at one point when we were there at, we were at Huntington Beach and, and, and looking across the beach. And I remember thinking to myself, to the outside looking world, we look pretty odd right now. Now, you might ask, why, why were you odd? Well, if you were to ask someone, what was the distinguishing mark of a Christian on that day, they would say, coming to the beach fully clothed, matching t-shirts, and a backpack. That, that's what really hit us. When, when we were there, we, were, we filed out of the vans, here we are. It was really helpful because I could look across and like everyone's wearing neon green shirts. And it's like, hey, we're here. And to the outside looking world, they were probably like, that is very strange. That is very odd. We made a scene, to say the least, and we were easy to pick out from the rest of the crowd. This morning, I'm thankful that John tells us what the distinguishing marks of a Christian are. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but matching t-shirts and backpacks is not the distinguishing mark of a believer in Jesus. What John says in this passage is a distinguishing mark of what it means to be a Christian and what it's been a distinguishing mark of Christian throughout history is love. It's love. What has set us apart is going to our love. We are known for our love. And so what we're going to define this morning, what is love? And maybe even just by that phrase, your mind goes back to the 90s, and all of a sudden you're there at a Saturday night congregation. Welcome. Some of you. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. And that's because we have a younger congregation. Welcome. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Yeah, all right, all right. Why is it difficult to love? Where does love come from? And my prayer is, is that we would be a people known for our love. Here's the first thing I want us to know. We're called to love. Right out of the gates this morning in verse 11, it starts out with this. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So John's coming to declare a message that's not a new message. It's a message that they had heard from the beginning. It's a message that Christians forever have heard this message 
of love. That we are to love one another. Christianity was set apart and marked by love. And I know I've shared this with you before, but I'll go back all the share even some of the different facets of this that even when we go back all the way to the early Christians and we see that the compassion that, that the early Christians had for people, the distinguishing mark of them was love. And we see that, that plagues that, that came across the, the fourth century and, and we see that, that as this, this plague began to, to strike the Roman Empire that people began to flee the cities and move to the countryside. It sounds pretty similar, right? How many people you know moved here from California, right? And you're like, and if you're here, we love you. You're welcome. Welcome to Utah. But they're like, let's flee the cities and move to the countryside. I mean, this is a common theme. But the one people who would stay behind were the Christians. I think about my pastor friend, Justin Buzzard, who's in San Francisco, Justin Buzzard's there. San Francisco's a hard place. I, I have, I think, friends that have closed their churches in San Francisco in the last year. I think of, of, of people in San Francisco and, and, and the flood of people leaving the city. But Justin has said, we're going to stay behind. We're going to stay here. We're going to seek to plant our church here. We're going to seek to be rooted here because San Francisco needs the good news of Jesus and we're going to continue to be marked by love. This is one of the things that the early Christians did. The bishop of Caesarea said, All day long, some of them tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and, just, and they distributed bread to them all. Their deeds were on everyone's were to look at Wouldn't that be an awesome saying? That if Salt Lake City were to look at Ecclesia Church, that they would say, man, look at what they're doing. Look at their love for for this city. Look at their love for the people. Look at their lips. The lack for one another, that their deeds are on everyone's lips. The last pagan emperor... Julian the Apostate recognized that the Christian practice of compassion and love was so compelling that he actually went to, to the pagan priest and he told them, I want you to begin to imitate the Christian's charity in order to bring about a re- revival of paganism in the empire. He's like, I want you to, you, you see what they're doing? You see the love and the compassion that they have? I want you to go out and do it. But here's the thing, it didn't work. They couldn't sustain that type of self-sacrificial love and compassion because that type of self-sacrificial love and compassion can only come from Jesus. This is the way the early church was marked. They were marked by their love. We're to be marked by our love. It says that we should, that we ought to. And I think this is John, one another. My message, it's an old message. It's a message from the beginning that we should love one another. My question is, if we should, why in the world is it so difficult? Why do we need to be commanded to do it if, it's, if we should do it? Why don't most of our churches represent this type of love? And I would say, most of our churches actually do. Now, we don't hear about it. 
It's not like CNN is looking for the most loving person within Christianity to come and be the spokesperson for Christianity. You know who CNN's looking for? The most extreme, out of this world, like, you know, that, that they come. They don't want the ordinary, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, gospel-centered person to come on CNN, right? That's why you can't believe media, right? They're looking for extremists. Most do. Most are actually living in this way. Most are actually exemplifying this type of love. But one of the reasons in, in which most of us, we should struggle with that, and that is a reality. Most of us do struggle. We know we should love, but we don't love, and, and we want to love. We, we're seeking to love, but it's difficult. Why is it? Well, this previous week, we, we read verse 10. It says, by this... It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So here's the thing. Our deeds give evidence to who our dad is. I, I talked about that last week. I, I shared with you. If you look at Jet, there's, there's things that Jet does that you go, oh, yeah, definitely Justin's son. That's him. There, there's a sense in which... Our, our deeds, the way our behavior, our life, our conduct gives evidence to who our dad is. He, and so we read last week, there's this idea, there's two families. You're a part of the family of God or you're a part of the family of the devil. There's no middle ground. And what John is going to go on to say is not only is there two families, but what one writer said is there's two streams of people. We, there's one of Cain and there's one of Christ, and that's what's described here. We look, and, and both of these people are the extreme. If you want to look at the extreme of hatred, it's Cain. If you want to look at the extreme of Christ, it's, or of love, it's Christ. And we see these two extremes, these two representations of what it looks like to, to live in a hatred way, and, and what does it look like to live in a loving way, and, and Christ and Cain are, are held up as our examples. And so we see two families, God and the devil. We see Christ and Cain. Wh which are you? Well, in verse 12, it says, we should not be like Cain. It's not now, here's the thing. I'm thankful this morning that my name is not recorded in the book of life as someone who, like, put up as an illustration, don't be like that guy. Right? Let me just tell you, if you're setting 2022, we're a month out, I should probably start thinking about my goals and ambitions for 2022. Don't be like Cain should be one of them. You can write that on, like, New Year's resolutions. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like this guy. This is what John is saying. It says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and it says, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So if we want to understand this story a little bit more, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 4. And I'll summarize it, but you can write that in your notes. You can go back and read about the story of Cain and Abel. This is a, a, a picture, one of the, the, the first murders described in the Bible besides the animals that were taken for the skins of Adam and Eve. This is the, the first experience of mankind taking the life of someone else. 
And it says his deeds were evil. And to understand this, we have to understand the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, we don't understand why, but both of them were, were scheduled or, or instructed to bring an offering to the Lord. So Cain, it says that he, he took of his crops, he took of his fruit, and Abel took of his, his flock. And you can, we can wonder and we can guess why in the world was, was one offering received and one wasn't. And that's basically what happened. When they brought these offerings to God, God looked upon Abel's offering favorably, but he looked upon Cain's offering. He says, sin is crouching at your door. There's a lot of speculation going. Yeah, ten reasons why his offering wasn't accepted this morning, but that's not the point of where we're going. But it tells us in Hebrews that that Cain lacked faith. Not one that was worshipped, that this offering that, that Cain brought was, was not one that was worshipful, sacrificial on, on behalf of, of Cain. He didn't trust the Lord with that offering. He didn't trust him with, with that gift. And so he came offering Something that didn't really cost him. And looking at his brother Abel, who he viewed as righteous, he took his life. The extreme example of hatred. What you're going to see is while Cain takes life, Christ gives his own life. There's this, this contrasting of the, the life of Cain and the life of Christ gives. Cain comes and Cain takes and Christ gives. And if we're trying to understand and kind of gain an understanding of what it means to love, love means not taking but giving. Giving of your life. It says in verse 16 in this passage, the description of love, what does love look like? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. For this is what it means to love, to lay down our life. Can I tell you, when you begin to do this, though, and I think it's interesting where it says that Cain killed his brother because his deeds were righteous, the very next it says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, verse 13. Can I help us this morning in terms of our relationship with the world? A lot of us in, in the room, I, I, I want you to hear, we are called to love our neighbor, each other. We're called to love, but we shouldn't expect love. We're called to love, but we shouldn't expect love. We should expect hatred. We should expect our neighbors to hate us. We are to love them, but we aren't seeking their love. 
Love does not come from the world, but from Jesus who laid down his life. For I, see more, I see more and more often that we live in a time where I see more and more Christians compromising Christian values and outright commands seeking to love the world. In, in, in part, our definition of love is uncomfortable. Standard is to avoid any conversation that would make people feel uncomfortable. So I, I, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to address that. And, and so I'm just going to put that in a box of do not discuss. I, I love because it was, it was all over the news. Like, what are the top 20 things you shouldn't discuss over Thanksgiving dinner, right? And there, there's all sorts of things that come up on the, on the table. Politics, mask mandates, vaccinations, all the real like, stuff that, that gets very heated around the dinner table. But I'm talking about more important things. Like we, we look past certain behaviors. They like give allowance for. And in many ways, we just say like, oh, we're just supposed to be accepting. We're supposed to love. We're never to make anyone uncomfortable. When in, in reality, that's not the life of Jesus. Jesus never, never left people where they are. He loves you as you are, but he never left people where they are. We never see Jesus come on the scene and say, hey, you're fine. I have nothing to give you, nothing to offer you. You're great. Just keep on journeying through your path of life. No, he comes and he challenges and he questions and he, and he does so out of love. To love people is not to avoid Most of the time, in all honesty, when we avoid, it's usually self-serving. It's not to make them feel uncomfortable. It's that we don't want to be uncomfortable. So we're called to love. We're called to love. But second of all, we're to be committed to love. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is the commitment to love. Look at this commitment. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or in truth. Here's what I want you to see. It's easy to love people in theory. Like, I, I can say, like, hey, do you have a love for the church? And you're like, yeah, I, I love the church. Do you have love for, for, for Ecclesia? Yeah, I love Ecclesia. Do you love other believers in Jesus? Yeah, I love other believers in Jesus. And what this passage tells us to do, then show it. Commitment in love does. Love shows its commitment in action. Now, let me give you an example, um, and, and I don't mean this to be critical because I, I know many of us who were in Afghanistan several months, you, in the past several weeks, like, let's look at what happened in Afghanistan several months ago, and you, you post about it on social media. And here's what I would say, you should, you should care for 
Our brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing extreme persecution in Afghanistan, you should. But it's easy to post about it. It's easy to take a few seconds to to write something down and put it all out to the world and go, look how loving I am. When in reality, it's easy to say we love the people and have hatred for the people that are sitting in our row this morning. And that's some of us. It's easy to love people in theory. It's easy to love people in this far off land and be disgusted for people that are sitting on your very row. A friend of mine recently said, it's easier to love the idea of someone far away than real people in your life that you don't like. We're called to lay down our life. We're called to, it's, it's to take action, to serve people, to give of ourselves. It's to be costly. It's to be sacrificial. Pastor Scotty Smith says, it's hard to throw rocks at people if our hands are already holding a basin and towel for washing their feet. We have to lay down our life. Let me ask you, what do you lay down your life for? Who has laid down their life for you? Who are you laying down your life for? Who are you disadvantaging yourself for? A few weeks ago, we were in our new building space and we were needing to hang here in our, our sound and lighting and speakers and another pastor from another church here in our city, Jason Chatham from Courageous Church, he, he reached out and said, hey, can I, can I help you guys with that? And, uh, and he came over and he spent... Friday night, he spent Thursday night, he was researching for us, he was helping us, he, he went and gathered materials for us, he joined us on Saturday morning to, to hang and think through and kind of figure out how we were going to do it. And I talked to him later in, the, in that night, and I was like, hey, what's going on? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm getting ready for the game Monday. And I just thought, I'm like, man, this guy so sacrificially gave. There's so much. He still had things to do for his own church. He still had things he needed to get ready and, and that he was responsible for, for his own people. But yet he took time. He laid down his life himself to serve us, to serve our congregation. He laid down his life for us. And you're like, well, I don't know that that's really laying down your life. And I want you to hear me say that, like, dying for we look at is actually easier than laying down your life for someone. We look at it and we go, well, Jesus laid down his life. And we're talking about that one moment where Jesus got upon the cross. And, and that's significant. But Jesus laid down his life for 33 years for you. Every day. Disadvantaging himself. Sacrificing himself for the good of others. See, my friends, like we, we love to live in this theory where we go, yeah, I would lay down my life for my family. Like if it, if it came to it, if somebody broke in my house and, and I had to stand in the way, if I had to take a bullet for someone, yeah, I would do that for my friends. You know, if there came a point where like to die a martyr's death and and I could take the punishment for everyone. You know, I would do that. 
moon chance. The reality of what John is calling us to is not this once in a moment blue moon chance that like you're going to take a bullet for someone, but he gets very, very practical and he's like, hey, when you wake up tomorrow, are you going to lay down your life? You have a calling and a commitment to give today. Will you lay down your life? We should be tripping over one another, trying to lay down our life for each other. In service, in gratitude, in thankfulness, in encouragement, in, in, in ways to, to care and provide for one another. Laying down our lives. Maybe you're, you're called to, I'm in this room, you're, you're laying down your life. Spouse, you're committed to lay down your life for your spouse, your friend. We're called and committed to lay down our life for our friends. You're part of a community group. We're called to lay down our life for that community group. Evidence here. Well, he goes on and gives us very practical evidence here of what that looks like. He says not to, to love in, in just word and talk, but deed and in truth. And what that means, it's not to devalue our words. If you ask my wife, she would much rather have words than any gift, right? She's like, write me a card. That, that, she's like, that takes more work, right? It's not devaluing. It's just that our deeds give evidence that it's real. And that's what it means, deed and in truth. It's that when we actually act out our love towards one another, it shows that it's real. The world's good. But anyone who has the world's goods, and so it basically says to lay down your life, you have something. You have something to give. You have the world's goods. You have some of us are like, we're clinging. And the actual like world's goods, to give you an example, because a lot of us are like, we're clinging to the world's goods. And the actual definition of like why it's called world's goods is because it's worldly, it will disappear. It won't last forever. And so the only way a worldly good actually serves and is beneficial is if we give it away. So you have the world's goods, you recognize that there's a need in others, you see a brother in need, and it's, it's singular. It's no longer this, like, out, out, like, love everyone. It's like, no, you actually see a person in need. Something individual. And it says, you have something to give, you recognize recognize the need in others, and then it says, and then you open your heart. You don't have a closed heart with those things. You open your heart, and you steward those. You're like, that's what he's called us to. You're like, well, where does this love come from? Well, it tells us, by this we know love. We know love because he laid down his life for us. If you look back at the, in the life of Justin, I can tell you that there's something that changed about my love when I was 18 years old. If my parents were here, my parents could testify. When Jesus changed my life, it changed the way I love. When Jesus changed my life, it, it changed 
how I gave of my time and resources. When Jesus changed my life, it wasn't all about Justin. Some of it is. Some of it still is today. But I began to recognize that there are people around me. Oh, there's other people in this world. And it's only by God's grace that he came in and he transformed my life and he poured out love into my heart. There was a change in my love that God gave me a concern and care for brothers and sisters who were totally unlike me. If we look across this room, you guys are different than me. And you're like, yeah, praise the Lord, right? And I'm saying, hey, praise the Lord. But somehow, like, the Lord has brought us together in this, this community. And the only answer for it is the gospel. There's a, uh, next door to our new building, they just opened up a game shop. And if you know anything about Justin Bendel, it's that board games is not my thing. Now, if that's your thing, that's awesome. But like game act out strategy, no way. Games where you like yell things at people and like act out things, love it. That's so good. Strategy, terrible. I'm going to lose at it every time and I'll never play. So I've been watching because week and I next door to our building and, and like their grand opening was this last week. And I drove in and, and I was stopping by our new building at like 9 o'clock at night and there's like 50 or 60 dudes in there all hovered around board games. Some of them are like lugging in luggage with like their home computer, like monitor. I mean, they're set up. Now, I can tell you that I have nothing in relationship to these people, all right? And I'm, and I'm going, someone's got to go in there and love these guys, right? Like someone from Ecclesia who loves board games and computer, like, we got to love these people. And I, now, I could be like, we should love them. I, he loved them. You know what would really show my love? If you actually drove by and saw me in there, you'd be like, dude, he loves them. He loves them, right? He loves them. It was sacrificial. It's not something I would do to, like, serve myself. I get no benefit out of being there. Christ. But to go and, and minister and share the love of Christ. I'm like, it's a, it's a golden opportunity. It shows itself. Love shows itself through our deeds. I love this. D.A. Carson says, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's us. That's us. We're a band of enemies. We would all be enemies if it weren't for Jesus. And so if we're looking across the room this morning and we're looking down our row and you're like, I love that person, it's only because of Jesus. That's where that love comes from. Those who have received the love of Jesus, experience the love of Jesus. Love. Everyone who hates his brother, verse 15, is a murderer, and you know him that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
But it says back up in 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And he's like, you know how you, you know? You know how you have assurance? You know how you have confidence that, that you belong to the Lord is you love the brothers. You love others. You love other people. You know why? The reason why is because the, the fact that you love other people shows that the love of Jesus has been poured into your life. That's the only way you could do it. Otherwise, we'd be a natural enemy. Lastly, the confidence to love. Not only are we called to love, not only are we to be committed to love, to lay down our life, but I love what I love. Now, I want you to see that this confidence doesn't come from you. I love what Mindy shared this morning, just in the sense of like coming up and feeling her own sense of inadequacy, of going like, there's, there's no way I can step in and lead in this capacity. This passage speaks to it. Because there's some of us in the room that go, there's no way I can love in this capacity. There's no way. And in some ways, you're condemning yourself this morning. In some ways, you're here this morning, and you're, you're like, I want to be good, but I'm not good. I know the reality. I know my own heart. I might be able to fool all of you, but the truth is, is I know me. I know my heart, and I don't have the confidence to love. And what it says in verse 19 and 20, it says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, the person who comes to then our heart, and he knows everything. This, this is describing a person who comes to a point of a crisis of belief, where you're like, I don't know if I should be leading. And I, and I wrote to all of our team who was serving here this morning is, I don't know that I should get up and be teaching about love this morning. Because I should be out there, somebody should be speaking it to me. Because I know the capacity of my love has, has much room for growth. But I don't stand up here this morning and, and teach love out of this sense of perfection of going, guys, let me just, I'm a, I'm a pastor here. I got this all figured out. If you guys need any help in it, you should just come over. Like, we model this in our home 24-7. My kids experience it. If you're in our community group, it's nothing but love. If you're my friend, it's nothing but, like, it, it just exudes from me. And you're like, okay, we know that's not real. But there's a sense in which, for most of you, many times me, we condemn, our hearts condemn ourselves. We all want to know that we're, we're God's children. We all want to know, like, we want this, this confidence. We want reassurance. But many of us are spending our, our days like, am I good? Am I good? Am I good? Am I good? And here's what this passage teaches us. John is telling us that if you doesn't want us spending our days going, am I good? 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 He wants to give you confidence. Because asking, am I good? Am I good? Am I good? Is just, it's self-idolatry. It's continuing just to be so sick about one saved. And that's why, you know, we look and we go, perseverance of the saints. We talk about once saved, always saved. 
And I think about denominations or people who believe that you can lose your salvation in Jesus. We don't hold to that. We don't believe that. He wants to build us to a family. He believe God gives us something. He wants to secure us in something. He wants to build us to a family. Can you imagine being adopted into a family and spending your days like, am I accepted by this family? Am I loved by this family? Am I going to remain in this family? Or are they going to put me up for adoption again? And that's not the way God treats us. God gives us reassurance. God is, is speaking. He wants to build confidence in your life so that you are freed up, not to be so self-focused, going, am I good, am I good, am I good? But to go, All right, is everyone else good? Is the church good? Are there needs? Are there people? How can I serve? How can I invest? How can I lay down my life? And you will never lay down your life if you're constantly confident yourself. And so there's a sense in which God wants to bolster your confidence. He wants to reassure your heart and go, hey, you can lead this morning. You can stand up there and sing praises knowing you're not perfect or you're thinking or you're because it's not based on your perfection or your thinking or your processing. It says God is greater than our hearts. Aren't we glad this morning that God is greater than our hearts? Yeah. There's so much freedom in that. There's so much life in that in knowing his love, in knowing his sense of, of, of reassurance, it gives us rest to know that we're secured. And when we're in that place, we'll be able to do what the passage teaches us to do imperfectly. Late in our life for our brothers. Here's what I want you to hear, church. God is freeing you this morning. He's given you the confidence to love. He's given you the confidence to love. He's freeing you up from knowing you'll never match up to the love of Jesus. Your heart might be telling you this morning, you're a failure. You're a failure. You're a failure. Hear this, church. God is greater than your failure. He's greater than your failure. He's wanting to free you. And so praise God. But the distinguishing mark of a Christian is not that we all wear t-shirts and wear backpacks and run around. But it's love. And he's given you the confidence and reassurance of his love so that you can go and love like Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I pray that we can just sit and soak in this reassurance this morning. This confidence. 15, 20 minutes. That when we walk out these doors in 15, 20 minutes, that we would walk out these doors with a boldness. Not because of our ability. Not because of our skill set just reassured by your love. You love us. You love us. You picked us out of the stream of Cain. It's not that our sacrifices were any greater, but you looked upon us. We were totally other. 
We weren't like you. And yet you, you said, you're going you're gonna to be mine. And you adopted us as children into your family. We can have assurance once we're brought into that family that we can never lose that family. You've given us that family. You've given us confidence in that family. And because of it, you've called us. In the same way, I pray, Father, that you would help us this morning. In the same way in which you laid down your life for us, not on the day of Calvary, but for all the years of your life, you sacrificially lived. Would we sacrificially live for those around us? Help us to love. Help us to give. Help us to have eyes that see the needs of those around us. We pray in the name of Jesus.